your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, comb me, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So in this passage, we have um, four people and two stories. Rather, Mark begins to tell one story and then another story inserts itself. Biblical scholars call this an intercalation. In fiction, it's called a, a frame story. In human affairs, it's just called life. Life is what happens when we're busy making other plans. Well, the, the two women in these stories, one interrupting the story of the other, is uh, an unnamed woman who has suffered for 12 years with an incurable bleeding disease. And then the second is an unnamed daughter who is curiously 12 years old. She is critically ill, and so her father, who is named because he's an important person, is seeking out Jesus for help in what appears to be the 11th hour of this terrible disease. Each one of these women is in need of something supernatural to change the course of their lives. Now, the young girl's father is named Jairus, and he's kind of a big shot. In fact, he's the leader of the local synagogue. That is, he's a member of the religious ruling class who, if you'll remember, have gone all in in the get rid of Jesus campaign. But Jairus is now prostrate before Jesus with a huge ask. Now, one note here, don't confuse him being prostrate on the ground before Jesus as a posture of worship. Mark's not telling us here that he is a person of faith or a follower of Jesus. He is desperate, but this is not necessarily the posture of a believer, but this is just social custom. And he tells Jesus that his daughter is dying and asks him to please and come, please come heal her. And I love Mark's just matter of fact language here in verse 24. Jesus is, tells Jesus his daughter is dying, and Jairus asked him, asked him to please come and heal her. So Jesus went with him. It's very matter-of-fact and very kind of sweet, endearing language. But then this other woman enters the story. And not only does she interject her need in such a way that Jesus pauses on his way to help 
Jairus's daughter. But this woman, because she is a woman, partially, has no business approaching Jesus like this, touching a man, a teacher, publicly. And she certainly has no business cutting in line in front of Jairus. Now, a bit of background on her condition, because in this situation, she's not only a woman, but her bleeding would have rendered her, according to the book of Leviticus, as unclean. Now, this means that she lived a life of segregation and marginalization, socially and religiously, as well as economically, because Mark tells us that she spent all that she has on cures that have never worked. Her physical condition stigmatized every aspect of her life. Now, Jairus approaches Jesus head on and falls at his feet. He's a leader in the local synagogue, and he's used to getting his way. The woman, on the other hand, sort of sneaks up behind Jesus and reaches out and touches the hem of his garment and then hides. She'd be happy if no one sees her. She was expecting to be turned away anyway. Jairus is named. She is not. Jairus comes on behalf of his daughter, but this woman doesn't have anyone to come on her behalf. He's wealthy, he's elite, she's poor, she's destitute, she's lower class. He's a proper religious person, and she's a nobody. But Jesus does something that is utterly remarkable. He stops, and he calls her to come before him, to approach him, just as Jairus had done. And she does falling at his feet. Can you, can you imagine Jairus, the father, at this moment? He's like hopping from one foot to the other. He's just dying to get Jesus on his way. And it's just happened. Jesus is going with him to his daughter, and now Jesus is distracted. And who does she think she is anyway? She's a nobody with a disease. She's not even supposed to be here. But Jesus is allowing her. He's validating her as she violates incredibly rigid boundaries of social conduct, the sacred codes of religious exclusion for people who are technically religiously unclean. Jesus is validating this type of impetuous behavior. But the woman was desperate. She was willing to change, to do anything to find change. She had lived on the margins for far too long. She'd been sick for far too long. And as often as the case, as is the case, desperation and, and faith often grow in tandem. So maybe her 12 years of utter desperation instead of seeding despair, have seeded a lot of faith because she approaches Jesus with this bold, impetuous, courageous faith. She was convinced that all she needed to do was to touch this young rabbi's clothes 
and she would be healed. And in fact, Mark tells us that it happens just as she hoped it would. And Jesus senses what has happened. But instead of being annoyed or angry or chastising her for her impertinence, he tells her that her faith has healed her. Which doesn't mean, by the way, that faith just works like magic if you have enough of it. Or that faith works independent of the power of God. But think about what he is telling her. If we had just read the end of chapter 4, it would tell us something important. Because just as Jesus has prioritized the needs of this poor, marginalized, sick woman above those of a religious nobleman, Jesus is here elevating her faith above that of his male disciples, who we learned at the end of chapter 4 lacked faith. It's incredibly surprising the way that Jesus treats this poor woman. It's not only surprising, but it's very subversive. It's very exciting. Now, unfortunately, this good deed, this breaking of social norms during this time that Jesus was healing the woman, Jairus' daughter died. Now, one would think that would be the end of the story. We're back to story one, and it has come to a very dreadful conclusion. This woman wasted Jesus' time. This is probably what Jairus is thinking. And now my daughter is dead. But Jesus tells the father, do not fear, only believe. That's a, a peculiar response to death. Maybe it's like when we tell someone, or it seems like, well, at least she's in a better place. Or you'll see her again someday. These religious platitudes that seem to make the matter all the worse. Do not fear, only believe. It strains the imagination. You might as well tell the father to climb a ladder to the son. What is one to believe when one's whole life is blown up in his face? The reason he's come to Jesus is so that his daughter doesn't die. What is he supposed to believe? That somehow life makes sense even in the face of a 12-year-old's death. Believe that in some unimaginable way that all will be well no matter what. I think the answer has to do with the whole purpose for miracles in the first place. They weren't meant for show. They weren't meant to convince skeptics or to gain notoriety for Jesus. They were acts of compassion in response to human need. In fact, that's the purpose of the incarnation itself, of Jesus becoming human. It is an act of compassion in response to human need. But these miracles are more than that also. They were individual demonstrations or microcosms of new life in God's kingdom. So in a very real sense, what Jesus was asking this grieving father to believe in was that 
God had begun in Jesus to make good on his promises to make all things new in the here and now. That Jesus was the agent through whom God was bringing this new life into this Father's world and by extension into our world. And that somehow that would make a difference even for him in that moment and even in our moments of desperation and pain and suffering. So just as this woman had taken a step of faith in approaching Jesus, Jairus takes a step of faith to follow Jesus. Capernaum is a fairly small town, and so he accompanies Jesus to, on a very short walk, to what is certainly a scene of death and mourning. And in fact, that's the commotion that they encounter, this wailing type of mourning that is going on around the household. Well, Jesus presses through the crowds once more as he has done multiple times in these last two chapters. And he makes the pronouncement that she is not, in fact, dead, but only asleep. Talitha kum, little girl, would you get up? And Mark leaves it in Aramaic rather than Greek, which is a rather puzzling thing because he he doesn't do this very often at all. In fact, just twice. Why keep that part in Jesus's everyday language? Maybe it's because something miraculous, something extraordinary is happening in the midst of the very ordinary. He's using words, Jesus is, that any parent would use to wake up their daughter on a typical day, on a, t- on a Tuesday. Talitha kum, wake up little child. And it shows how Jesus' kingdom breaks in through the subversive, that is, an impetuous woman who has the faith and the courage to violate social convention. And Jesus' kingdom breaks in through the most ordinary things of life, like a little girl waking up from a nap. God's power, friends, breaks in when we're making other plans. God is found in the interruption. The beauty of this story is the fact that it's not just one story, but it's two stories. It's the story of an interruption an interruption that no one expected and that was in violation of all of the social customs that Mark's readers and the people around the story would have expected. And the disciples, if you can imagine, because they were quite impetuous too, they were probably wondering, how are they going to get anything done in this new kingdom? What with this demon-possessed man that confronts Jesus and he actually talks to him and spends time with him with the needs of powerful families who are inserting their needs into Jesus' story and this very pushy woman. How are they going to get Jesus where he needs to go? How is Mark ever going to move the story along if all these desperate people keep elbowing their way into the plot? But this, you see, is what Mark is trying to teach us. The mentally unstable that is, the demon-possessed person, 
the frightened parent, the chronically ill woman, the sick child whose future seems lost. These people are the point. These people are the real point of why Jesus has come. They are not to be seen as mere incidents or obstacles or interruptions of Jesus' way to a larger and more important ministry. Surely Jesus had a plan and a goal, and he sets his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem and the cross. But along the way, he is willing to have his plan diverted, and he gives himself to everyone he meets. All the interruptions demonstrate how Jesus stays fully present in the moment and in the midst of human need, even in the midst of constant interruption. But according to Mark, indeed according to the whole New Testament, Jesus himself is the greatest and the most unexpected interruption of all. You see, just as with this girl, the story of Jesus goes through death to get to new life. And Mark is preparing his readers, preparing us for the confusion and the disappointment when our story, or in Mark's case, when the story of Jesus reaches an unexpected detour or an interruption. In the case of Mark, it would be Jesus's own death. And he's preparing the reader for the confusion and the disappointment that's going to come when the story looks to be over. But also for the time that will come three days later when astonished people will come to a place where a dead body once was but is no longer, just like it happens in this story. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we think about our life in the big picture right now, uh, this, this virus, this lockdown, this quarantine seems like a gigantic inconvenience, an interruption in what you were doing in our lives and what we were doing in our lives. And certainly there is plenty to lament because this disease has brought so much suffering and so much pain and so much death. But Father, I pray that instead of just seeing it as an interruption in what we would have done or what we were doing, I pray that we would look for how you are interrupting our lives on purpose. And I pray that we would look for what you are trying to teach us and show us and demonstrate to us that we couldn't see in other times, in more normal times. And I pray that, Father, we would not see other people as an interruption, but that we would take interest in whoever presents themselves to us, that we would see how we could assist them, lift their burdens, help care for them, lead them to you. Father, I pray that even though knowing we can't help everyone and we can't always stop, that we would more intentionally notice those things that we look like, that we look at as inconveniences and interruptions and ask, where is God in this moment? And I pray that we would do so as a church. And as we come to the table, would you feed us and would you bless our time? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to confess our faith as we 
prepare to come to the table. And this morning we're using the Heidelberg Confession, question 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, it is given for you. Eat this all in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this all in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, for two millennia, Christians have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, he is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God and for the people of God. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. Take a few moments now to uh, take part in communion, and then Dylan will lead us in a couple of closing songs. Sing the Lord.